Today, all over the world, there are thousands of Sino-Soviet intelligence agents with money to burn, looking for unsuspecting targets for exploitation among members of our forces. So uh, I had to re-look it up because they said this during the game. Uh, they broke a National League record. It's the highest scoring National League game ever. Um, in the modern era, it's one of the highest scoring games. I think it's like, I think it is the highest scoring game in the modern era. Because like the last time that there was a score that was above that was uh, in uh, 1900. And then before that, it was like 1897 is the highest scoring game of all time, which was 33 points by uh, the Chicago Colts in 1897. It's the highest scoring MLB game. So they almost hit the highest scoring MLB game. But they played the um, Marlins, right? Yeah, it was the. Yeah, yeah, the Marlins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Marlins scored. Uh, the most out of any team that's ever been blown out 10 plus runs. Yeah, yeah. They, they got blown out like crazy, but like their their score is still much higher than the average MLB score today, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, that was, it just goes to show you uh, they're all, they're, they're firing on all cylinders. Atlanta is. Um, I think they're, I think they, I mean, arguably probably have the best offense in the National League, you know? Yeah, um, I mean, I think they're probably the best National League team. Just uh, I've been watching them. I just think that, like, I think Atlanta, it's so funny because, like, Atlanta and Chicago are my two favorite teams, right? And I think they both have similar problems. Uh, well, Atlanta is much better than Chicago right now, but uh, I think their problems are, like, they, they typically can perform offensively. And then... Uh, but like some, sometimes our offense will just fucking break down and crumble. Like there's like one little right. like chip in the armor and some, they attack mm-hmm. that and it just crumbles, but also like they're fucking pitching. Like their pitching can never go deep. Like they have like a few good pitchers. And then after that, like their pitching just falls completely apart. Mm-hmm. So like Atlanta's got, um, who, who, who are their, who are their main pitchers? Who is it? Freed. Uh, it's Max Freed. Um, yeah. It was um, Minter. Uh, Sororka, or did he get hurt? I think he got hurt. Yeah. Um, but um, I'm not super. I'm not super. Uh, I don't know any of their pitching depth really. I just uh, I see more of their offensive. I see more of their offensive stats more than I see their pitching because they're pitching to me. I I mean, I yeah, being an Atlanta fan, you have to have cautious optimism. But I see I see their pitching is like their biggest Achilles heel, you know. So it's uh, I think it's we're one we're one, I'm I'm scared because like we're one bad elbow sprain or one bad sore elbow away from just being a shitty team, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, I pitchers. I can definitely feel that because I mean, like, um, uh, Cubs are as well. Cubs, we have Darvish right now is actually performing. He's like the best pitcher in baseball right now, um, currently. I mean, like, stat wise, he's like I think he's got the most like wins out of pitchers in baseball currently. 
Mm-hmm. I think he's got the most consecutive wins um, as well. Uh, so we have him, and then we have uh, Lester's not really performing that well. Um, Kimbrel's kind of slipping, like talking about non-starters, I guess, oh, too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Quintana's hurt. Um, and then, uh, fuck, I can't remember his real name. I, I, I always forget his real name because they call him the professor, but he's, a uh, he's, uh, he's doing good. Hendricks, Kyle Hendricks. He's, oh yeah, he's, uh, he's doing all right, but yeah, I can definitely, uh, I can definitely relate to, um, uh, worrying about <laughs> an elbow sprain or something. Right. I saw that. The last, I think, the last six games, uh, Freddie has five run, five five home runs in the last six games. Acuna has six home runs, or maybe it's eight home runs in the last six games. Mm-hmm. And Duval also has six home runs in the last six games. Acuna, or I, I would say Freddie's probably Atlanta's best player, right? But Acuna yeah. is like the probably the most fun to watch. Yeah, I would yeah, say he's... consistent consistent wise, Freddie's probably the best player. Uh, at least Atlanta has. Right. And he's been, well, he's just constantly, he's consistently been their backbone for his entire tenure with Atlanta too. So, yeah. But big, a uh, uh, big country boy from California, <laughs> big country. I remember, I remember when you and I went to that game and that guy was calling out to Freddie, big country. Let's go. Yeah, let's go big country. Yeah. And you're just like, he's from California, <laughs> dude. Like what the fuck? Yeah. I know. <laughs> Did you watch football last night? I was just about to say, uh, no, I did not. <laughs> and, uh, it's funny because I, I was I was going to say that I don't think I like football anymore. I really don't. Good like, for I you, brother. I just can't. I can't watch it. And I guess because I kind of feel dirty when I'm watching it. Yeah. Just because, like, I don't know. I guess because I've played it and I know, I know the extremities of it. I know, like, these – I just hate how it's so – uh well i mean everything is but it's been it's been super politicized uh in the last couple of years and i think it's just it's and it's not even the sport that's pushing me away it's it's really just like i don't know like maybe i maybe i just don't feel like there's any excitement watching football for me anymore and i just feel like these people are getting hurt and i just think about all of the the brain damage they're going through just to have the most awful fan base in the entire world for you know, <laughs> behind them. It's like, yeah. Jesus. But uh, yeah. also, also I think I'm a hundred percent honest and I'm not even afraid to say it. I think my love of football's died like inside of me. Something died inside of me when they, when Atlanta lost the Super Bowl a couple years ago, like yeah. something died, something, something died inside of me. And it was to yeah. fucking ball. It was to the Patriots of all people. And I think, Something definitely, I, I definitely had some kind of weird emotional reaction to that where I was just like, I think I'm done with this, you know, because like, you know, I mean, I don't know, it was just, that shit happens well, all the time. And I mean, it happens, it happens, you know, I guess, I guess maybe, maybe it wasn't just the Patriots that kind of put me off of it, but just the, God, you just start seeing the same things over and over again. You just start seeing the same storylines and then mm. be, being, being as loyal to Atlanta as I've been. And then that shit happened. I'm just like, God, I think I'm, I think I'm just done with this. And so ever since 2015, I think every year my interest in football is dwindled. And now like I could barely even tell you who the starting quarterbacks of each team are. And you just, I could do it in my sleep a couple of years ago, but now I can't. 
Yeah, that's fair. Um, I was going to say, well, you're, you've, um, you've decided to join, um, to watch the sport of the proletariat, which is uh baseball. Right. Yeah. The people's sport. Right. That's what, uh, I think Josh was talking about how, you know, cause like Mal and, and like, and, and China, of course, is super into basketball. And they said the basketball is a sport of the people. And he, he was saying that. And I, I, I keep telling people, I'm like, you know, baseball, I, you have to realize, like, the people who like MLB and people who play in MLB are super fucking racist, usually. Mm-hmm. They're super sexist, super homophobic, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to realize, like, it comes with the territory with it being the working class sport. Because... Back in the day, like it's not none of these like Nancy boy football players who, you know, get brain injuries from hitting each other too hard. But like they would fucking the baseball players would go and play night game baseball and they would be like, yeah, I need to start my 14 hour shift at the factory tomorrow. But I also have to play, you know, two (laughs) double headers like and, and baseball. You could do that because like baseball can destroy a person physically, but it, um, you know, it's not anywhere near football level so oh, i it, it's the mm-hmm. true sport of the uh, proletariat in that regard so right also like baseball i think baseball is the least linear of the major sports because baseball you you can take i guess the different aspects of baseball you can enjoy is you can just go out and throw a baseball with somebody and you're just pitching to each other and you're playing you know you're catching and you you're honing your skills by just following the ball by throwing to each other mm-hmm. and then you also have to hone your uh, your batting skills and you can go to you can go to a batting cage you can go out with a bucket of baseballs and just throw throw some balls at your at your uh, at your friend you know at a park or something you don't even have to be at a baseball field really you know you just have to you know it's it's just it's i think what i'm trying to say is just a little more dynamic and it's a little more versatile yeah the way you can the way you can participate in it mm-hmm. and um also there's there's uh but also be a versatility, like, I mean, softball, I mean, kind of derived from it. You know, softball was kind of, you know, the whole underhand pitching and making the ball bigger and, and then it becoming, you know, strictly a, a woman's sport. You know, mm-hmm. it's all, all that really descends from, from baseball. And so, uh, yeah, I definitely think baseball is a lot more versatile in that matter. Yeah. But, um, yeah, uh, so I, I guess we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and start talking about, uh, some bullshit. I don't fucking know. Some nerd shit. Karl Marx's Capital, <laughs> right? Yeah. We'll talk about this bullshit. Nope. Did I, before, I remember before we start? Yeah. I was gonna ask. Did you give my pictures of uh the two books that I bought for my birthday? No, I don't think it's Michael Heinrich. Or no, it's uh. So Michael Heinrich, he's this German economist, and he wrote mm-hmm. uh. He's wrote, written a couple books. Um, they have to be translated, of course. But the, I bought two of his books. The first one's an introduction to the three volumes of Karl Marx's Capital. Oh, nice. And the second one that I like got like almost on my birthday. It was like the day after. Is um, he's creating a three-volume biography of Karl Marx in his life. But he's doing it in a different way because he said there's like a thousand and one different biographies of Karl Marx, but none of them take his work and him as a man and like put them in the same category. Right. Like they kind of separate this is a biography of Karl Marx, but we're not going to talk about his work at all. Or this is a a book talking about his work, but we're not going to talk about his life at all. And so he's creating this like three like big volumes 
uh, and it's called uh, Carl, Karl Marx and the Birth of Modern Society. So I got volume one of that because mm-hmm. it's the only only one that's translated in English so far. So. Okay. Have you started on any of them? I started on, uh, because of the podcast, I started on an introduction to the three volumes of Karl Marx's Capital. I'm only like 20 pages in so far, but it's it's been pretty good so far. He goes through, um, it's it's funny because like, you know, we were talking um, before a little, uh, a couple of days ago when we were talking about when we were going to record. And I was asking you like, what book do you want to review next? Just like looking ahead talk about next and um it's funny because michael heinrich was like you can't he says you can't only read volume one of capital you have to read all three volumes i'm like that's a that's a tall order but geez so i don't even know what's in i mean i've we've kind of covered a lot of ground already in volume one so i can imagine what he goes into in volume two and three yeah. And Marx apparently was also going to create a uh, so he's going to create capital. Right. He, he never finished it, but he was going to finish capital. And then he was going to create one uh, a, a series of books that talked about how the state ran. Oh, OK. So and he never got to do that. So that poor man. Um, I will say after after reading these three chapters, because we're. Uh, this really was a quick read. I think I read it all in like two hours, three hours. Yeah. Um, this, I remember finished it. I remember finishing this and being like, this is the best book ever. Cause he, I think, uh, he, I, I've had this general idea and he kind of, he put my thoughts to words. Uh, and I didn't even know that he even shared this. Uh, I didn't even, this basically I'm, uh, what I'm about to talk about is his general formula for capital, the two formulas that he talks about, mm-hmm. um, commodity, commodity, money, commodity, and then money, commodity, money, um, which essentially broken down to, uh, I'm definitely generalizing and jumping to the main point here, but it's like um, the, the two formulas uh, are different in principle because one is a very capitalist, it's a very capitalist uh, uh, mindset to have. And that's the, mm-hmm. uh, he says the money commodity money formula is very capitalist because the goal the goal with your money is just to use it to make more money mm-hmm. and there's a commodity and there's a commodity in that process um, and uh, that's that's kind of that's something I've had in the back of my head for a long time because uh, jumping out of business school people are like oh you spend money to make money that's what I right. hear and I'm like that's a very capitalist mindset. And then he actually, I did not expect him to actually pretty much say that verbatim right here, but Mm -hmm. he just puts a little bit of, he puts his little scientific spin on it. Uh, You know, um, but yeah, it's, he he took, he took, he basically took my, uh, my feelings for what a capitalist mentality is when it comes to purchasing and selling. And he basically put it to a formula. And I'm like, this is, this is right on the money of like how I've always felt about how businesses and the capitalist system work. Like you spend your money only for the sole purpose of making more money, you know, and that's the money commodity money formula. So yeah, um, I and, was all over it. And I, I do want to, I want to backtrack just a little bit cause we're going on part two, right? So we're, we're going through all mm-hmm. of part two cause it's a very short part. Um, right. So, so we're talking about chapter four first, the general formula for capital, like you were saying. And, um, I do want, this is a very important distinction that he makes at the beginning here. And I really want to talk about this as well. Um, And we'll, we'll keep on, you know, discussing 
uh, actually like how the first form of in which capital appears. But he says that the um, he, he says the circulation of commodities is the starting point of capital. The production of commodities, their circulation, and that more developed form of their circulation called commerce, these form the historical groundwork from which it rises. Okay, so mm-hmm. the modern history of capital dates back from the creation in the 16th century of the world embracing commerce and the world embracing market. And very important here. He, he talks about this later mm-hmm. on a little bit, too, but I, I want to say this. There is a difference between mercantilism and capitalism. Right. And we'll get to that mm-hmm. later on. Um, but there's a there is a difference between um, being a merchant and selling as a merchant um, and more so than than being like a capitalist. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, he says that typically uh, capital it it, ta- it takes the form. So he even says he talks about the merchant, right? And he says that that typically um, the the moneyed wealth is the capital of the merchant and of the usurer, right? Mm-hmm. And so the usurer, um, just for the, like those who don't know, is is a is like a lender. It's a person who lends out money. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's like a it's like a bank, right? Like a bank would be a usurer, right? Because they 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 lend out um money. So the the first form or appearance of capital is money, mm-hmm. right? He talks about how the simplest form of the circulation of commodities is commodity money to commodity. So I have um I have a a, a pallet of sprites, right? And I'm like, well, you know what? I made all these sprites myself. I'm a hardworking sprite farmer, right? Um, I need to, uh, I'm going to, I don't need all these sprites. I just need like half the pallet of sprites, right. To get through my, my normal day. So I'm going to go to Austin and I'm going to say, Hey Austin, you, you're not a sprite farmer. You are a Nintendo switch farmer. And, uh, you know, just using random examples. And I say, okay, um, uh, you, you want, you want sprites, right? So I'm like, I will sell you half Mm -hmm. my pallet of sprites for money. And you mm-hmm. go, okay, well, half a pallet of Sprites is worth, you know, the same thing as, uh, you know, a quarter pallet of Nintendo Switches or whatever. So here's 200 bucks just to keep things in, right? Here's 200 bucks. I'm like, all right, right. cool. I'll, I'll right. take that. So, so it, it works in, in, in that, that sense, right? So I take the 200 bucks and I say, okay, well, I've traded in my Sprite for, mm-hmm their money form for the form like a value that is associated with my Sprite in the form of money so that it's the universal like equalizer. Right. But I want to go buy some baseball hats because I really need baseball hats to survive this winter. So I take my $200 and I go buy baseball hats because that's what I want. That's what I need, whatever, whatever food, whatever it is. So I purchase a commodity, right? And that's a normal form. Well, you're literally, you're, uh, you are selling in order to buy is what he says. Right. Okay. But capital and the capitalist 
doesn't do that. They buy in order to sell. So their transformation of money, in, they transform their money into commodities. So they, they take their money, right? So I have the, the great equalizer money. I have 200, um, 200 rubles. And I want to buy, uh, you know, coffee because coffee is selling. So I buy coffee. I buy 200 rubles worth of coffee. And then I sell that coffee for more money. And that's mm-hmm. the end goal of it. Yep. So what he says here is that when you buy in order to sell, it says money that circulates in the latter manner. So right, uh, money, commodity, money. It mm-hmm. transforms and it becomes capital right and it's already potentially capital so um yeah so he says literally what you're what you're doing here and he he uses the example he says it it, he said we can do a shortened version of the example he says the same thing for like money with money to money he said if i purchase two thousand pounds of cotton for a hundred pounds and resell the 2,000 pounds of cotton for 110 pounds. I have, in fact, exchanged 100 pounds for 110 pounds, money for money. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just in his little, he has a little brief paragraph that I like, the where he just essentially um, breaks down what the principle of both of them are. Um, he says, the path uh, CMC, uh, commodity, money, commodity, proceeds from the extreme uh, constituted by one commodity and ends with the extreme constituted by another. And that falls out of circulation into consumption and consumption, the satisfaction of your need and short use value, therefore is the final goal. Uh, but on the other hand, money, commodity, money proceeds from the extreme of money and finally returns to that same extreme. It's driving a motivating force is determining purpose is therefore the exchange value, the, mm-hmm. the money you get, the money you get from that. So, um, right. You know, it's not it's not fulfilling a commodity need, your satisfaction, your the motivating force behind it is the exchange value. So you can uh, capitalize on more money from that. Yeah. And he make he, he makes a clear distinction. He says there is a palpable difference between the circulation of money as capital mm-hmm. and its circulation as mere money. Right. Capital. Only so that's a little bit before that consumption part, but. Capital mm-hmm. is determined, and he talks about this, and it's on page 67. Um, he talks about this as it's basically the original sum advanced plus an increment, right? So the cotton that was bought for 100 pounds is perhaps resold for 100 pounds plus 10 pounds. Four hundred pounds. The exact pro- form of this process is therefore money commodity money, where uh, money equals money plus delta money, right? So mm-hmm. he talked about how it's like the increment, the increase. Yep. This increment, this is the most important part of this these three chapters, right? This is where we get the term surplus value. Yeah. Right. The value originally advanced. Um. Let's see, the value originally advanced, therefore, not only remains intact while in circulation, but adds to itself a surplus value or expands itself. It is this movement that converts it into capital. Yep, good stuff. So he um, 
and and he even makes the distinction. He says that um, he 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 does say that there are sometimes there will be surplus value that the circulation right uh, commodity money commodity oh. will incur, but it's different oh. than the the accumulation of capital because capital's in game is the money whereas the circulation manner to get the use value out of an object is ultimately to mm-hmm. sell that so you can purchase something with a mm-hmm. like a use value to you um mm-hmm. let's see here he says the repetition or renewal of the act of selling in order to buy is kept within the bounds by the very object it aims at, namely consumption or the satisfaction of definite wants, an aim that lies altogether outside the sphere of circulation. But when we buy in order to sell, we, on the contrary, begin and end with the same thing, money exchange value, and thereby the mm-hmm. movement becomes interminable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. um, mm-hmm. When I when I was reading this part, I remember I remember uh, reading this, and I actually had the thought of what he says at the end of the uh, at the end of that, where he says uh, just basically at the end of that section, uh, probably a couple of sentences, his long sentences after that, he says, therefore the final result of each separate cycle in which a purchase and consequent sale are completed forms of itself the starting point for a new cycle. So you know c- circulation is endless, and basically yada yada yada. The movement of capital, therefore, is limitless, you know, um, just because of that type of circulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he says um, the circulation of money as capital is, on the contrary, mm-hmm. an end in, end in itself, for the expansion of value takes place only within this constantly renewed movement. The circulation of capital has, therefore, no limits, which I think is mm-hmm. important, is a very important distinction. Here's mm-hmm. where he gets to. So he just this is the first time he says this word. As the conscious representative of this movement, the possessor of money becomes a capitalist. Yep. Notice that conscious representative of this movement. So a person who a person who buys a Nintendo Switch because they want one isn't a capitalist. A person who right. uses an iPhone to tweet out isn't a capitalist because you're you're buying a use value right you're satisfying either a desire or a want a person like jeff bezos whose sole purpose is to expand his capital is a capitalist so oh are you still there austin yeah i'm here okay you just cut out for a second yeah so yeah, the, well, I was gonna say the person who ex- tries, wants to expand their capital is a capitalist. The person yeah. who is conscious representative of the movement. He says, um, "Let's see." Um, the ba- become- the boundless drive for enrichment, this passionate chase after value, is common to the capitalist and the miser, pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and he capitalist. Says- yeah, yeah. capitalist is irrational. Yeah, yeah, right. The ceaseless argumentation of value, which seeks to attain by saving his money from circulation, is achieved by more acute capitalists by means of throwing his money again and again and again and again into circulation. 
the restless, never-ending process of profit-making alone is what oh, yeah. he aims at. Yeah. This boundless greed for riches. The passionate chase after exchange value. Yeah. Definitely. And he, he does, he talks about the, you know, the miser, which is uh, pretty interesting. Mm. I like that he says, um, he, he, he says that, um, let's see, capital is money. Uh, uh, let's see. We arrive at two propositions, capital is money, capital is commodities. In truth, however, value is here, the active factor in the process. Um, let's see, differentiates itself by throwing off surplus value from itself. The original value, in other words, expands spontaneously. Right. Let's see. Yeah. It has the... It has acquired the occult quality of being able to add value to itself. It brings forth living offspring, or at least lays golden eggs. Oh, that's that's a great metaphor. Mm-hmm. Let's see what else we got from this section. It's a good section. Oh, here it is. Let's see. We got uh, the I first think, the I, first interpreters of capitals. Yeah. The capital is the mercantilist, is what he says. Right. Buying in order to sell or more accurately buying in order to sell deer. All right. Industrial capital to his money. It's changed into commodities. And by the sale of these commodities, he's reconverted into more money. There's interest bearing capital, which is um, he, he says it's literally the circulation uh, money, commodity money is a bridge. <laughs> He said, there's no intermediate stage. It's just in the form money to money. So to say money that is worth more money, value that is greater than itself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think uh, the real, the we've already gone through the real meat of this chapter, but I mean, the last, the last paragraph is pretty poetic and really well written. I think um, he really, <laughs> he does this with all of his chapters. I mean, he, he, he perfectly calculates the end of each chapter with a uh, really good sentence, but um, I'll get through it really fast. Uh, basically, it just says buying in order to sell, or more accurately, buying in order to sell dearer. Uh, the money, commodity, money uh, seems admittedly to be a form peculiar to one kind of capital alone, merchant's capital. But industrial capital too is the money which has been changed into commodities and reconverted to more money by the sale of these commodities. Events which take place outside of the sphere of circulation in this interval between buying and selling do not affect the form of this movement. Um, in the case of interest-bearing capital, oh, hold on a second. Yeah, lastly, in case of interest, less interest-bearing capital, the circulation of MCM represents itself in a bridge form. Its final result without any intermediate stage a concise style, so to speak, as money, money, i.e. money w- which is worth more money, value which is greater than itself. Mm-hmm. But that, uh, I mean, that, that perfectly says it right there. Perfectly said. Um, and I think uh, I think that's really the, the biggest takeaways from the chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, so we got what, surplus value. We got what, so right. he defines capital. Right. He finally defines capital. He defines um, what a capitalist is, and just in a few pages. And he also talks about he talks about the uh, formula for capital. Um, 
he talks about mercantilists being the first capitalists. He talks about the different forms that capital can take. So he says that there, you know, there's interest-bearing capital. There's capital that represents itself in the form of commodities. Um, yeah, and there's industrial capital as well. Mm-hmm. Well, I like this part. I, I forgot I highlighted this. He says, the capitalist knows that all commodities, however tattered they may look or however badly that they may smell, are in faith uh, and truth money. And in truth money are by nature <laughs> circumcised Jews. And what is more, a wonderful means for making still more money out of money. Yeah, I highlighted that. I forgot that he briefly said the capitalist sees something, no matter what it is, uh, and he can somehow find some way to get money out of that. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like what it's kind of like what pawners do. They go around to people who have a bunch of shit, and maybe it made me think of like. It made me think of people who just keep a lot of shit around their house. Like, what's that show? Uh, it was, what's that show on Hoarders? Street? Yeah, yeah, or not even hoarders, just like collectors. And then uh, like those people, American uh, Pickers. Yeah, yeah, that's it. They uh, those people go to just people who have a bunch of shit laying around. And they're like, oh, we can, we definitely could capitalize on this, you know. Mm-hmm. And they, so, so they they lowball them. They give them a decent, you know. They they make them think that they're getting a good deal out of what they that person considers junk. Mm-hmm. But that, and, you know, a capitalist says, oh, no, I see that commodity as purely as money and I can make money off of that. Mm-hmm. So the best way I can do this is to offer them. They don't have any there. There's it has no use value to their to them anymore. But the American pickers, it's all about the exchange value. That, that is thing. that is the perfect that yeah. is the perfect example in real life of how the formulation of capital. Yeah, exactly. like the form capital that's literally the perfect like example mm-hmm. yeah because that's crazy. what they do they take mm-hmm. they take money they buy commodities for the exchange of money the mm-hmm. ever exchanging that's the whole business is they, the ever expanding amount mm-hmm. of money they don't care they don't need those commodities no they don't yeah it's just that's the root the root of their uh, you know the base of their operation is to expand the uh the money for money you know more money for less money so, yeah, so they're capitalist in that regard. Um, then we have the best, the, what we can represent industrial capitals, fucking, it's so easy. It's mm-hmm. Bezos or any of those types of people, right? Um, right. And, and then, or, well, I guess, I guess Amazon is not technically a manufacturer. So it'd be like a manufacturer, uh, I guess. Like, they actually are now because they have their own. Amazon Basics, which is their own inmate, it's their own like brand products that you can buy. Like you can buy. I guess Apple. I guess Apple would probably be the best. Like yeah, that probably be the most example. Yeah. Yeah, and then you have uh, so they're the industrial capitalist, and then you have uh the the user, or you have the the money like uh money money uh formulation, which would just be banks. Like I mean, that's the easiest. Right banks student loans right here here's money you owe us more money later right type uh, stuff so okay so that's chapter four so i guess we'll get into chapter five which is called contradictions in the general formula of capital um i highlighted the first thing that i highlighted when i was reading this was um my hegelian senses were tingling again i was like oh <laughs> he's, he talked about how there's um he says that there are two antithetical processes, which are sale and purchase. Um, 
Let's see. It's the he says that uh, the form which circulation takes when money becomes capital is opposed to all the laws we have hitherto investigated bearing on the nature of commodities, value in money, and even of circulation itself. What distinguishes this form from that of simple circulation of commodities is the inverted order of succession of the two antithetical processes, sale and purchase. Mm -hmm. How can this purely formal distinction between these processes change their character as if it were by magic? This this inversion has no existence for two out of the three persons who transact business together. As a cap as capitalist, I buy commodities from A and sell them again to B. But as a simple owner of commodities, I sell them to B and then purchase fresh ones from A. A and B see no difference between the two sets of transactions. They are merely buyers or sellers. And I, on each occasion, meet them as a mere owner of either money or commodities, as a buyer or a seller. And what is more, in both sets of transactions, I'm opposed mm -hmm. to A only as a buyer and to B only as a seller, to the one only as money, to the other only as commodities, and to neither of them as capital or a capitalist, or a representative of anything that is more than money or commodities. Mm -hmm. And then he, that's a very long sentence because he keeps going on after that. But um, he says that if he were to... Uh, he says that A and B would declare the whole. Okay, so he's talking about how he's he can essentially position himself between um, right the uh, buyer or seller A and buyer B. Mm -hmm. He said that if A and B could like see themselves, he said A and B would declare that the whole series. I think my connection is bad. Is your connection bad? Can you hear me? We're recording. And and we're live. The, listen, you talk shit about Jeff Bezos and he tries to cut he tries to <laughs> he tries to cut you off. Yeah. We know well, I, we're both on Apple devices and we started talking about the industrial. Oh, I'm <laughs> not I'm not yeah, on so. an Apple device. I'm on a fucking oh, Acer okay. Chromebook. Okay, well, I'm on, I'm on, I'm on a, uh, my uh, new iPhone 11 Pro, so uh, I guess I got to be careful with what I say about Apple. Don't come, <laughs> don't, don't come throw me out this window, dude. No shit. I was talking on, I was on Zoom and I was talking about uh, the the state and how oppressive the state was and shit, and I kept getting cut off. And my teacher was like, "This was like last semester," and my teacher was like, "He has such powerful ideas. They keep trying to silence him." <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, okay, so we're on chapter five, contradictions mm. in the general formula of capital. Um, so the last thing that, okay, so I guess we'll go back through this. So again, highlight, uh, he talks about the Hegelian antithetical processes of sailing, uh, selling mm. and purchasing. Right. He talks about how um, a capitalist will position himself Especially like we're talking about like American pickers, a person, a capitalist will yep. uh, put himself in between uh, buyer A and seller B. Mm -hmm. um, he said from each person's viewpoint, he said it's, it's literally a, a mere sale from A's point of view and from B's a mere purchase. Mm -hmm. um, but it creates surplus value because um, I, I, you know, I buy from uh, I buy from B and sell to A. But mm -hmm. uh, they don't see that. 
And he said, he said, if you were to point those out to both of them, a and B would declare that the whole series was superfluous and nothing but a bunch of hocus pocus. So that if, uh, for the future, a would buy direct from B and B would mm-hmm. sell direct to a. So, um, it's in that, in that cell that surplus value is created and the capitalist gains that surplus value. Yeah. Um, he says both parts, both part with goods that are as use values are of no service to them and receive others that they can make use of. This act produces no increase of exchange value either for one or the other for, for each of them already possessed before the exchange a value equal to that, which he acquired by the means of the operation. The result is not altered by introducing money as a medium of circulation between commodities and making the sale and the purchase. Because like, as he stated earlier, money is just, it is a commodity itself. It is the, mm-hmm. it is a form of the commodity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah the, va- the value of commodity is expressed in its price before it enters into circulation and therefore a precondition of circulation. And it's not the result of circulation. Right. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. As he says, like, he talks about if you, if you do, let's just say that you are, uh, if we do cut out the middleman, right. We get like, mm-hmm. uh, seller B and buyer A, uh, he said, then they both gain or they both ought to gain because the value of the thing consists solely in the relation to our wants, but is more to the one is less to the other and vice versa it is not to be assumed that we offer for sale articles required for our own consumption. We wish to part with the useless thing in order to get one that we need. We want to give less for more. Right. right. So he, he talks about how, um, how it, a transaction of that nature, like, uh, of, of trading. Cause I mean, humans have done, have traded and stuff for ever since we've ever, since we could right. walk and talk, but, um, and it's mutually beneficial in that regard, but the capitalist just positions himself in between and um, like a, I don't know if he says it in here, but like magic, he just makes a, a new money just appear. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. It's the creation of surplus values. Um, let's see. It can, uh, it, let's see, can consequently be explained neither on the assumption that commodities are sold above their value, nor that they are bought below their value. So like, that's where he talks about how um, you can, he said, if, if, if uh, he said, he said basically like if you are buying something and let's say that I, I am selling something, right. I'm selling that I'm selling a pallet of sprites and you're selling the switches and I just happen to gain more or less. It's basically superfluous to the transaction because I'm not generating surplus value because I'm buying or I'm, I'm selling my surplus of sprites that I made Mm -hmm. and you're, you're selling your, your switches or whatever. And it just so happens that like when I trade you sprites for money or, you know, like when I trade someone sprites for money, even if I get 10% above the value, it's for the soul. It's for the purpose of buying switches or whatever, right. you know? So it's not, it's just kind of generated in that, um, in that form. Um, let's see. He said that there is a, um, 
there's an existence of a class that he says to to be consistent therefore the upholders of the delusion that surplus value has its origin in a nominal rise of prices or in the privilege which the seller has of selling too dear must assume the existence of a class that only buys and does not sell i.e. only consumes and does not produce right which is um you know obviously doesn't exist so he talks about that there's a delusion that surplus value is just a rise in prices it's not how surplus value is generated um it's generated solely from his formula right the the accumulation of capital Mm -hmm. right he says there's there's uh you know there's a couple of forms of capital like we talked about before there's merchants capital and money lenders capital, right? Right. Again, um, he's like, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I was just gonna say that uh, when it comes to capital, he says capital cannot arise from circulation, uh, and it's equally impossible to arise f- apart from circulation. Uh, it must have its origin, its origin in both circul, in both both in circul in circulation and not in circulation. Um, that's a little confusing. Say uh, one more time. I heard capital cannot arise from circulation. Right. Uh, capital cannot therefore arise from circulation. Uh, it is uh-huh. equally impossible for it to arise apart from circulation. So he's saying it can't fr- arise. Capital can't arise from circulation and also can't not come from not being in circulation. Uh, it must have it must have its origin both in circulation and not in circulation. You know, so that's where I'm like, okay. <laughs> I like that. I like this. He he says, um, he says the mer- He's talking about like merchants, right? And he says, um, let me see where. The, God, he he writes such long sentences. Yeah. Yeah. So that it's right after he talks about circulation, he says that the merchant parasitically shoves himself in between the buyer and the seller. <laughs> it is in this sense. Yeah. It is in this sense that Franklin says war is robbery. Commerce is generally cheating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> money exchange for more money. Mm-hmm. The user is most rightly hated because money itself is the source of his game and is not used for the purposes for which it was invented. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> oh yeah that's awesome yeah. and yeah. then also yeah he also mm-hmm. talks about um labor right um yeah we're getting into the juicy shit here oh you're talking well he, he gets into that in the next chapter Let's say yeah he starts he yeah. starts it with in this chapter mm-hmm and he also says the conversion of money into capital has to be explained on the basis of the laws that regulate the exchange of commodities in such a way that the starting point is the exchange of ex- equivalents. Our friend Moneybags, who has yet, <laughs> who has yet is only an embryo capitalist, <laughs> must buy his commodities at their value, must sell them at their value, and yet at the end of the process must withdraw more value from circulation than he threw into it at starting. His development as a full-grown capitalist must take place both within the sphere of circulation and without it. These are the conditions of the problem, 
And then he says, I don't know what this means. Hick rotus, hick salta. It's some Latin bullshit with no footnote. <laughs> Thanks, Marks. Oh, no, actually, I think I looked it up. Hold on. Uh, uh, this Okay, here we go. Here we go. Uh, yeah, I found the footnote online. I wrote it down. Um, this is the reply made in one of uh, Aesop's fables to a boaster who claimed he had once made an immense leap in Rhodes. Um, he says, Rhodes is here, leap here and now, but it is also a reference back to the preface to Hegel's philosophy of right, where he uses the quotation to illustrate his view that the task of philosophy is to apprehend and comprehend what is rather than what ought to be. Mm. That's good shit. Some more young Hegelian. Mm-hmm. All right, so here we go. We're getting into the, the labor. We're fixing mm-hmm. it into the labor theory of value, folks. Yeah. Not in this chapter, but that we're getting into it. Yeah, we're getting there. So um, chapter it, six, right? Yep. Yeah, I was just gonna say let's just jump straight. Let's just go to chapter six because that's where the uh, this is where this is where you start salivating over his uh, over his work. <laughs> so well, chapter six is the buying and selling of labor power. Mm-hmm. So Austin, I've been I've been kind of uh, very verbose. Do you want to give us a little bit of a rundown of chapter six? So uh, yeah, I'll start I'll start with my my first uh, my first little highlight here that kind of resonated with me, um, and I put a little asterisk I marked this. Uh, didn't really highlight it so i'll start with this piece first and then i think it really i think it really sets the stage um he says we mean by labor power uh labor capacity the aggregate for those mental and physical capabilities existing in the physical form the living personality of a human being uh, capabilities which he sets in motion whenever he produces of a use value of any kind mm-hmm. um and then he uh kind of builds on that in order the owner of money may find labor power on the market as a commodity. Um, and then yada, 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 uh, in order that its processor may sell it as a commodity, he must have it at his disposal. He must be the free proprietor of his own labor capacity, uh, hence of his person. Um, and then the big, the big highlight that I put exclamation points by is he must constantly treat his labor power as his own property, his own commodity. And he can do this only by placing it at the disposal of the buyer, i.e. handing it over to the, uh, to the buyer for him to consume for a definite period of time temporarily. Uh, and this way he manages both to alienate his labor power mm-hmm. and to avoid renouncing his rights of ownership over it. Yep. And that's, uh, that's, it, it's it can't be any more prevalent to how we just become just mindless uh, workers that sell our only use uh, to uh, to capitalists and um, it's basically so like you said he, I'm gonna I'm gonna use the parasitic example he said where a capitalist jumps between uh, uh, you know the buyer and the seller uh, but he also jumps between the worker. And the workers, uh, value. yeah, the workers value. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, uh, he steals the, uh, surplus value of the worker. Um, mm-hmm. I think we, we all know, well, at least most leftists know at least that. Um, I think mm-hmm. he does. So he says that, that 
the worker who sells his labor w- willingly well he doesn't say willingly but he says he converts himself from a free man into a slave mm-hmm. for the only like wage slavery right for the for a, a few periods uh, of time um because he also has to um you know exist outside of mm-hmm. being a laborer or he would probably just die you know mm-hmm. um it's a, I, I love this thing this part the question why this free laborer confronts him in the market has no interest for the owner of money who regards the labor market as a branch of the general market for commodities and for the present it interests us just as little we cling to the fact theoretically as he does practically one thing however is clear nature does not produce on this one side owners of money or commodities and on the other men possessing nothing but their own labor power the most important part ready this relation has no natural basis neither neither is its social basis one that is common to all historical periods it is clearly the result of a past historical development the product of many economic revolutions of the extinction of a whole series of older forms of social production fucking stamp that mark it in your calendars folks that's every time you talk to somebody about capitalism being the predominant only fucking form of organizing society and social production. I want to point to the board that said we used to have Kings and Kings Mm -hmm. used to have a divine right to rule. And it was impossible to overthrow the Kings until the French cut their fucking heads off with guillotines. (laughs) So Um, not to go too tanky, but mm -hmm. there it is. It's, it's Mm -hmm. capital. There's no natural, basis and there's no social basis that is common to all historical periods period there you go mm-hmm. Karl Marx said it therefore it must be true Marx 316 <laughs> Marx exactly. 316 baby yeah um, here he comes with the steel chair oh <laughs> yeah um, um definite historic also important definite historical conditions are necessary that a product may become a commodity Mm-hmm. Yeah, product, and then the product must cease to be produced as the immediate means of the substance of the producer himself. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's good shit. Good shit. So pal. he says, uh, uh, and this one historical condition comprises the world's history. Capital, therefore, announces from its first appearance a new epoch in the process of social production. Which I mean, he's not wrong. I mean, it, capital really does, and he it has brought with it a new epoch of social production. I mean, here's the th- here's the thing about Karl Marx, right? And you have to realize that like Karl Marx as a person wasn't just saying poo poo pee pee capitalism is the worst thing ever, right? He does mm-hmm. say that in in this book. He that's a a firm quote that he says, but mm-hmm. Karl Marx said that capitalism and and he says that like it has created wonders for the world, right? It has created like advancements that are like hitherto thought impossible, right? But like at what cost, right? Karl Marx's capital, like this entire book is just this entire first volume, at least that of what, what we read. And most of his work, if you read some of his other work and we're going to read some of his other work on this show, but it, it is, 
a critique of a system that he views as deeply flawed. But at the same time, I mean, it's right here. And Capital announces the appearance of a new epoch in the process of social production. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's true. It really is. It's it's yep. like, and that's not to say that like things they, they that countries or societies that aren't capitalists haven't produced. Because I mean, look at the Soviet Union for God's sakes. They were they had to operate in a capitalist framework, but they were technically really existing socialism, and they produced like crazy. But yeah. But I mean, capital really has it. it it's a, uh, you know, it's it's started it started a new, you know, uh, it started a new way to socially produce, and it's done it pretty, mm-hmm. pretty well and, until it fails, you know, until the ever expansion, you know. Um, yeah. So he he talks about how, um, the the so. The capitalist, the person who buys the labor power of the worker, has to provide a means of subsistence, right? Mm-hmm. So that the conditions of, like, the, the worker's health and strength can survive. And it has to be sufficient to for the guy, to for the person, to maintain him in his normal state as a laboring individual. His natural wants, such as food, clothing, fuel, and housing, vary according to different conditions, climatic and other physical conditions. But um, it's also, he has to have a mode of satisfying them, right? Um, Or, you know, he says the owner of the labor power is mortal. If then his appearance in the market is to be continuous and the continuous conversion of money into capital assumes this, the seller of labor power must perpetuate himself in a way that every living individual perpetuates himself by procreation. So this is where we get feminist Marxism. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We also get a little bit of like, um, we get a uh, well, of course, it is most most of it is philosophical, but I like where he he's gonna dip into uh, mortality and the immortality of labor power to in, a, in the eyes of a capitalist. Mm-hmm. Um, this this little section hit me pretty hard here. He says um, the owner of labor power is mortal. If then his appearance in the market is to be continuous. And the continuous transformation of money into capital assumes this: the seller of that labor power must perpetuate himself in a way that every living individual perpetuates himself by procreation. Um, hence, the sum of means necessary for production of labor power must include the means of necessary for workers' replacements, i.e., his children, in order that his race of peculiar commodity owners may perpetuate perpetuate its presence on the market. So, yeah, that's some pretty heavy stuff just by uh, our procreation is really important to a capitalist, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is um, – I mean, he, he talks about – like, I mean, it's it's incredible. Like, he, he – when, when people talk about class reductionism and they talk about as a, as a person – okay, anyone who tells you you don't need to read Marx – like as a leftist is a psyop. They're just funded by the CIA, George Soros, like every, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like yeah. they're funded by fucking, I don't know, Fox news or some shit, but like they, 
here's where we get feminist Marxism, right? Marx, Marxist feminism. Mm-hmm. I mean, it says it right here. Like every individual will wear and tear and they will die. So they have to be continually replaced. So mm-hmm. what is the continuum? What is the replacement? And it's, it's children. The children are the workers, right? Cause the children will be laborers. Mm-hmm. So that, I mean, that's, important and also i mean so there's that right it's the birth of feminist marxism but also later on so we're talking we'll talk about um i guess we'll we'll wrap this up soon and then talk about our our final feelings on the whole uh, of the three chapters we read the part two but i want to just say this one last thing uh we'll say a couple last things the first one is that um he says that labor power is interesting because um, it's the one commodity that the capitalist himself doesn't own, but mm-hmm. it's unique in the way because the laborer allows the buyer to consume it before he receives payment of the price. He everywhere gives credit to the capitalist that this credit is no mm-hmm. mere fiction is shown not only by the occasional loss of wages. Uh, it's, it's not, it's, shown not only by the occasional loss of wages on the bankruptcy of the capitalist. Hmm. When you start, this is important because um, it, it does happen, but like I'll, I'll give a pretty good, like recent example on um, pensions. So you come to work for a company and hmm. they offer, they used to offer pensions, right? And you say, okay, I work for this company for 30 years, 40 years, whatever. Um, and then you, you work and you, you, you put in your, your time and then the company says we are going to pay you for the rest of your life because you put in so much work that like we owe you, right? Because we've stolen, literally stolen your value. Right. <laughs> so pensions are going away now. Like there's hardly any places ever that have pensions anymore. And even then, like the pensions are going left and right. So he he is saying, I mean, you are losing those wages because of the, and it's not even the bankruptcy of the capitalist that you're losing your wages. You're, you're work, you work at this job for years, um, and you're, you're giving credit, you're literally giving credit to the capitalist, and the capitalist doesn't reciprocate. Right. So I think that's very important. Um, and then also, uh, I think this last part is pretty funny. Uh, not pretty funny, but he's like. Um, this is where he talks about, uh, he says, on leaving the sphere of the simple circulation or of exchange of commodities, which furnishes the free trader vulgaris with his views and ideas and with the standard by which he judges a society based on capital and wages. We think we can perceive a change in the physiognomy of our dramatis personae. He who before was the money owner now strides in front as a capitalist, the possessor of labor value power follows as his laborer the one with an air of importance smirking intent on business the other timid and holding back like one who is bringing his own hide to market and has nothing to expect but a hiding mm-hmm. yeah. that's, that's how he ends chapter six yeah um i uh i guess i guess this is this is really uh and it's funny that I read this around the uh, this recent news that broke out about I don't know if you saw it but um, 
So uh, you know you know all about uh, Vince McMahon, and I showed you that piece that John Oliver did on him about how he doesn't uh, he signs his uh, he signs the wrestlers as independent contractors so he can't pay them benefits mm-hmm. um, because they're not an employee of the company. They just um, certain 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 attributes of that person's labor and their name and every kind of production they provide uh, except their except the exclusive work except exclusive work um titles them as an independent contractor under that clause and Mm -hmm. so recently i don't know if you saw this but vince mcmahon said that from now on uh if you are under a contract as a performer with his company you cannot use your you cannot use the wwe name uh to uh profit off of uh third-party media or like mm-hmm. third party, third party. Basically, he said, uh, "You're an independent contractor, but if you work for somebody else, uh, uh, you're going to get sued for everything that you own." Um, and so, like, what's happening is a lot of like a lot of people stream, like a lot of wrestlers, uh, like Xavier Woods. We've met him at a convention uh, at MomoCon in Atlanta. He's a big. He, all of his almost all of his income now comes from his his uh, streaming services mm-hmm. and what he provides uh, his his gaming channel on YouTube. Uh, which is hugely successful. I mean, that's like that's like his full time job now. Like wrestling is his part time job. Um, so just recently, but apparently I learned uh, before before I uh, I'm I'm gonna guess I guess I gotta put an asterisk on this. Apparently now WWE owns his his streaming service, so he probably just he doesn't actually even own that. Uh, but now people like. Uh, uh let's say we have um i'm just gonna use an example somebody like uh he doesn't wrestle anymore but let's say uh, stone cold steve austin mm-hmm. uh, let's say let's say he's still employed currently by wwe as a performer um his contract si- he, he signed under as an independent contract which means he can't compete or perform with any other promotion uh and he also can't use the name stone cold steve austin he basically can't profit outside of the his own WWE uh, labor as uh, he can't profit off that name Stone Cold Steve Austin. So basically if he did anything else, and I guess this might be a workaround and I don't know how the fallout is going to happen yet. Um, but, let, but essentially Stone Cold Steve Austin, if he ever went to like a signing or if he went to a convention, he would have to be advertised as his real name, which is Steve Williams. Mm. And, yeah, he couldn't wear any WWE gear. He couldn't be. He couldn't basically act uh, completely at all associated with WWE, um, because WWE is not WWE is not capitalizing on his on that work. You know, right? He, even though it's his own terms and he's owning the means of that work, he's going out and doing whatever he's doing, and he wants to profit off of it, and we use his name. Um, but now Vince McMahon is cracking down on that because he's being a capitalist. He's jumping between a worker's, uh, a worker's rights to profit off their own and to produce and, you know, uh, you know, have their own, have their own means of, of creation and expression. So um, that just recently broke out. We don't know what the fallout of it's going to be yet, but a lot of people are like, okay, now a wrestler's union is just inevitable. Like it's going to be happening within the next few years. It's true. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it's definitely going to happen. Um, but that it's just, it's fitting that we would read about the sailing of labor and that kind of story broke. And it's, I think 
it'll be the the wrestlers union will be the next big labor movement that we see here i think i think there'll be a wrestlers there'll be a wrestlers union before we see a general strike i think um so it's uh yeah i think a lot of people are jumping ship a lot of people i think have asked for their release from the company because they know that it's just a bullshit contract um that basically says if the wwe isn't capitalizing on your name or you're trying to capitalize on our name and we're not profiting off of it mm-hmm. then then you're you're fired you're you're not we're you broke you you, you breached your contract and we're suing you for everything that you profit off of this um so the capitalist mindset is they basically stripped they basically stripped all of that that working power from from the wrestler and is now basically saying no we you we are to credit for your success not your own work <laughs> so mm-hmm. uh so now you are made, now they should be treated like employees is basically what if you're gonna if you're gonna say you're our employee you can't do do this work for other people then why are you signing them as you know quote unquote independent contractors right so. yeah it's it's it, i mean uber uber and like Oh yeah, Uber's good. Example. Yeah, they do the same all thing. Those, yeah, they they sign their workers as independent contractors, so they don't have to pay them benefits, they don't have to give them vacation time, they don't have to uh, uh, provide them with health insurance, which is it, right. like, I mean, as the fucking parasite that they are, I mean, like Vince McMahon does nothing but provide the facilities. And I guess he provides like the training and the storylines or whatever, but like that's all he does. Where right. the wrestlers. Without the wrestlers, he wouldn't have a product, and the wrestlers go out there, and then what he does is instead of the wrestlers being able to sell their labor power directly to the consumer, because Vince McMahon fronted the capital, he automatically uh, and parasitically positioned himself in between the wrestlers and the consumers, right? Uh, I hate that word consumers, but like, you know, the viewers, right? right? And then he steals that surplus value fucking ad infinitum like he just does like he is such a minorly fucking capitalist it's like right man is like such a fucking caricature which is like i mean all most of the the fucking sports people are typically right. like most right. all capitalists are like caricatures of capitalists right like i mean fucking jeff bezos is like well, and, and elon right. musk are like comically like fucking evil people but right Right. Well, it's just like it is funny because um, it was so you you've watched it. You know about it. And I'm sure literally I don't think there's one person on the earth that doesn't know the story or doesn't know uh, the peak of wrestling was Stone Cold Steve Austin and Vince McMahon. Right. It's funny because Vince McMahon in that storyline was actually being Vince McMahon. (laughs) He was Mm -hmm. being the he was being the capitalistic boss asshole. That was depriving people of their right, uh, depriving people of their labor, and and then and not even insulting and capitalizing on the laborers, but the consumers too. He's like saying, "No, like you guys paid." In the story, he's like, "You guys paid to come see Stone Cold, Stone Cold Steve Austin, but guess what? I kicked him out. He's not fucking here." And so that you know that's that's part of the story, but at the same time, like he could do that, like in real life, mm-hmm. he can actually, he can actually get rid of, let's say Stone Cold Steve Austin and, and then continue to profit off of him right. and, and use his name. Cause according to his contract that he signed, that's his, that's his property. Like Stone Cold Steve Austin is his property. Yeah. It's, it's fucking, I mean, it's horseshit dude. Right. Yeah. Right. 
but, uh, but yeah, it's fitting because that's what I kept. That's what I kept thinking about while we read that last. When I read that last chapter. Yeah, dude. It's um. So, all right. So uh, I guess we'll wrap this up too. Um. So final final thoughts on this section, part two of Capital that we've read. This is the um, and I'm I'm going to reference another wrestler, but Macho Man Randy Savage says the cream of the crop. Like this was, I think this was the cream of the crop so far of what we've read. Right? You agree? Yeah, I agree. I mean, we get so much in such a short period. Like, I think I read this in like maybe an hour, hour and a half. Right. Um, for yeah. part two, yeah. and it's just so much. I mean, like, to to give me like to to kind of give the viewers at home, like an an example, I guess the beginning of part two on my copy. um, So it starts on page 65 Mm -hmm. and then 67 page 67 is almost all highlights. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. I don't usually, that's good. I don't usually highlight in books anyway. Um, And I I just started with, with capital because of just uh, to, to, you know, kind of get my thoughts in order when we talk about it, not to be searching for everything, but like, there's so such good stuff and and page 67 is like we get we get surplus value we get the formula for capital we get a, de- a working definition of capital we get a working definition of capitalist and all forms that capital takes whether that be industrial capital right uh like mm-hmm. mer- like merchant capital um, we get the contradictions in the general form of capital in chapter five where he discusses it then we get uh you know and that's where he talks about just like money being exchanged for more money, um, lending. And then chapter six is like, we get all about labor power. So I think these three chapters combined, like in part two are just, mm-hmm. I mean, they're just in, like incredible, you know, like, I mean, I, I do agree. I agree that it's probably mm-hmm. so far uh, the most substantial, like mm-hmm. even, even more so than like, probably I, I would say like, these this part was probably the most substantial thing that we read so far yeah. oh yeah um and i'll i'll go on to say that like uh i remember the first episode we did uh you said that uh someone recommended i can't remember who it was in brown blank uh somebody said don't read you read the first part last or you read the first chap first two chapters last mm-hmm. um but i think you can't really res. It doesn't really resonate with you until you fully understand Marx's approach to what money is and what capital is, um, and uh, basically him breaking down that in our in our society because money is the medium between things. Uh, you you really we have we have to dip into uh, the circulation of money and commodities. We have to you need to understand what he means by commodity um, and you know, seeing and how a capitalist sees a labor power as a commodity, you know? Um, so I, I think, I think we're doing it the right way, reading it chronologically. Do you think so? Oh yeah. 100%. I agree. I think you need to understand yeah. what a commodity is, what exchange is and what, yeah. how, how money fits into that and how, yeah. how the different forms of, uh, you know, commodity and exchange formulate before you can talk about capital itself. Um, so yeah, I, I mean, all in all, good section. Um, okay, so I guess uh, if that's it, we'll uh, sign mm-hmm. off for now. But um, next time, so we have, so I'll pose a question to you on air, Austin. I'll put you on the spot here. Um, so we have part three, right? It's called the production of absolute surplus value, where we talk about 
you know, uh, the labor right. process, right? We talk right. about constant capital and variable capital. It's all this stuff. So this one's actually the longest section of the bunch. So we have oh, um, chapters seven through Let's 11. See. Whoa. Yeah. Uh, so let me see here. Do you, do we want to break this up by we'll do, how about we, we do chapter seven through nine for next time? Yeah. Cause and then I just, we'll, I just kind of got, yeah, I got through those. When you get to chapter 10, which he calls the working day, chapter mm-hmm. 10 is huge. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, let's just read up to chapter 10 and we'll stop. We'll do the working day. Holy shit. This is the, I, I'm intimidated just by looking at like all of this <laughs> skimming through the work. Oh my God. Like you should see all of this. <laughs> it's okay. Is, we'll get through. This is what okay, we'll do yeah. next yeah. time. So part three, we'll, we'll break part three into two parts. We'll yeah. do, you know, we'll have a, a whole month to digest this entire part. So we'll do, we'll okay. do chapter seven through for people following at home, chapter seven through nine, right up into. So it's, it's the labor process and the process of producing surplus value up until chapter mm-hmm. nine, the rate of surplus value. We'll finish mm-hmm. chapter nine. So we'll get up to chapter 10, which is the working day. So that's where you stop. If you're yeah. like re- Marxist archive or whatever, stop at the working day. And then we'll come back, you know, we'll another two weeks and then we'll come back and finish out that part. So sounds good. Yeah, let's do that. Okay. Well, all right, guys. Well, uh, I guess we'll see you next time. All right.